There's a curiosity as to where we are, what we are. Existence, the physical universe, is basically playful. Welcome to the Curious Humans podcast. I'm your host, Johnny Miller. Hello, Curious Human. This is a really special podcast episode, and this intro will likely be a little bit longer than usual. In this episode, I'm speaking with Edward Dangerfield, and we do a deep dive on the new modality of breathwork that has emerged here in Bali. I'll keep you in suspense about what this is, but I will say that this is really the first time that Ed or anyone has talked publicly about this. And since recording my initial podcast conversation with Ed uh, almost two years ago, I completed a 400-hour training with him and the team here in Bali. So this was really a chance for me to reflect and dig into some of what emerged during that container. Some of the highlights for me were hearing Ed describe what I consider to be his superpower for paying attention to the subtle cues that he's noticing and tracking in clients. He, he's kind of like a, like a real-life Sherlock Holmes. Um, everything from people's posture to the tone of voice and the words they choose. And this allows him to make generally pretty accurate hypotheses about both their breathing patterns and how this shows up in their lives. He also walks us through an imaginary breath translation so that hopefully you as a listener will get a sense for this art of reading and interpreting the language of the breath. And I also really loved hearing him articulate the connection between capacity for dynamic breathing and dynamic thinking and the very tangible effects um, on, on our health and lived experience that kind of working with these maladaptive breathing patterns can have. And finally, he shares some of his bold ideas for the broader impact that this emerging modality of FBR might have. From running large-scale studies, working with leaders of organizations, um, and even designing a breathwork-specific wearable device that could enable self-guided journeys to be run safely. This episode of Curious Humans is also sponsored by Nervous System Mastery and the second experimental cohort that I'll be running later this year. And honestly, if you're even curious enough about this to listen to a podcast episode titled New Frontiers of Breathwork, then my sense is that you'd probably be a great fit for this upcoming cohort. Um, and this is where I'm pouring the majority of my creative energy these, these days, and I'm really proud of the way that it's coming together. So you can find more details about this uh, unique curriculum at nsmastery.com and there's links in the show notes. Okay, well, without further ado, I give you this uninterrupted conversation with my mentor and fellow nervous system nerd, Edward Dangerfield. Welcome, Ed. It is great to have you here. Thanks so much, Johnny. Um, really good to be here and, and to be back in a recording space with you. How are you feeling in your body in three words? Ah, excited for sure. That's the first one. Mm. Grounded. Steady. Hmm. 
So congratulations. In 35 podcast episodes, you are the first guest to have been invited back for a second episode. Um, so you must have done something right in the first round. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I guess a uniqueness as well in the, you training and pursuing uh, what we talked about initially mm-hmm. uh, over almost two and a half years ago now. Yep, yeah. yep, really coming full circle. Um, so before we dive into the deep end and the training, Last time, you might remember that I asked you what you were particularly curious about as a child. And so today, I'd love to begin by asking, what is something that you're curious about in this moment? Mm. Thank you, Johnny. Well, I mean, I think (laughs) immediately what comes to mind is why am I here again? You know, so like you open it with this kind of inquiry, like you've been invited back as a guest next uh, second time, right? And uh yeah, so this, this is sort of this process right now that just comes up for me is like, why? You know, I'm curious why I'm here. Mm. Um, and not only like, why is it me here, but why is it me talking about what I'm talking about? Why is it important? Mm. Why is it meaningful? Why would I be invited back? So that's sort of the first thing that I'm curious about. And I think that might unravel into like the, the deeper curiosity of what it is that, you know, so we've been learning and exploring and sharing Mm. in the last couple of years about about humans and, and breathing. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And this also feels like a very poignant time uh, in that you've just completed another training. And so I imagine there's a lot that's alive for you right now. And I'm coming to the end of my chapter in Bali and kind of thinking back on the, the broader questions and the broader things that I've learned in our time together as well. So mm. the timing feels very potent right now. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, bro. Yeah. And it's just really interesting. I'm it's, it's like I'm coming out of that intensity of, of uh, the full-on three-month container, um, mm-hmm. which is like I when I'm in it, I'm loving it and I'm forgetting mostly how exhausting it also is simultaneously. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, just because we love something and it's really fun doesn't mean it doesn't take a huge amount of energy or bandwidth. Mm-hmm. And so the timing, like we yeah, today's a Wednesday and we closed out on Friday, so about five days ago. And yeah, it's, it's really... For me, the timing of this was kind of crucial where I haven't yet quite gone into the full collapse mm. of like just like <laughs> the biggest exhale after, you know, mm. holding space for 12 people to come through that process. Yeah. So it was really nice to, to kind of time it where I'm like, I'm still in that space of excitement, but I'm not yet, I'm not in the same level of overwhelm slash exhaustion. Mm. And at the same time, I'm kind of like still, it's very, very fresh. Mm. Yeah. So that's synergistic with you having been through that process uh, and yeah, the chapter that you've got, which is, you know, some, some exciting new horizons and, and likely some sharing of a lot of different styles of work into a lot of different areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Be- beautifully put. Um, so for, for listeners, if you haven't already heard it, I really recommend listening to our first episode together, which was, Ed, as Ed mentioned, kind of two and a half years ago, back in January, 2020. Um, and that focuses much more on your own personal journey. But for maybe those who haven't listened yet, could you give like brief context as to how you went from being a emotionally repressed restaurant owner to a kind of world-class breathwork facilitator? Like, <laughs> what was, what's the what's the summary on, on yeah, that? Yeah, the first thing I suppose is <laughs> daunting to be labelled as such, but I guess that is the reality now, and it's um, uh-huh. we've certainly got the team to to demonstrate that now. I mean, I think in a nutshell, it was it was the uh, the traumatic experience of being caught in an avalanche and then the subsequent understanding of what it took to recondition mm. my nervous system 
with a sync from a single event trauma. And that then kind of opened the doorway into this Pandora's box of everything else that I'd been just kind of stuffing down and jamming down. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, a combination of probably like years and years of suppression in my, in my sort of emotional set self. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that, that coupled with just like an event that was like, this is now too much. Mm-hmm. And that moment of this is too much led me to ultimately like deep, a deep sense of overwhelm, collapse, dysregulation in my nervous and endocrine system, mm-hmm. depression, and then subsequently, I think we touched into it in the last podcast, but moving into a space of I can't to the to the point of you know c- deeply contemplating taking my own life. Mm. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think you know it's been said that the low points are the turning points, and and like of course, looking back, they are. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was the lowest, categorically the lowest time in my life, measurable in a variety of different ways, <laughs> and so. I am still, you know, unsure of what really kind of lit up within me to decide that there was a different way. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, a combination of different things that have combined to bring me to a point of being able to actually integrate those big experiences, mm-hmm. find deeper emotional uh, intelligence, uh, expression and balance in my own life. And then subsequently to teach that, um, which you know, ultimately now is getting to close to a decade from that incident to now. Mm. Um, yeah, probably nine years ago. Mm. So, I, I, yeah, it's, it's interesting to think about how long it's taken and then at the same time how initially it was, like, miserable and now it's just very enjoyable. Like, how <laughs> you enjoy life, which mm. um, even even with the challenges, yeah. So, I think in a nutshell, mm. that's kind of the, the, the summary of the last 10 years has been, like, yeah, got a bit messed up found a bunch of different tools, applied them with various different levels of success, yep. found for me what was the silver bullet, which was, which was breath work, mm-hmm. and combined that with all of the other modalities, continue to find more modalities, mm-hmm. and keep practicing. Mm. Wow. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's powerful. Yeah. Um, so maybe just as like a teaser for listeners as well, yeah. um, without breaching any patient confidentiality, could you just give a, a sense of some of the, people and clients who have sought out this silver bullet that you just mentioned for one-on-one breathwork sessions in the last couple of years yeah sure thanks johnny i mean yeah like just to put like in 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 very broad strokes working with professional athletes Mm -hmm. um working with um ceos startup founders working with people who have uh no longer have a need to work due to their financial position um basically on how they've you know, worked or invested previously. Mm-hmm. And the common thread is like uh, this thirst for something more. Like there's mm-hmm. just there's something more that's not – it's either not working for them. <clears throat> and I would say that my client base probably since we last spoke has shifted. Initially it was like I was dealing mostly – or working mostly with patterns of breath that were more around anxiety mm-hmm. or depression or sort of like some, some – elements of PTSD that needed to be kind of shifted through. Mm -hmm. And I think my work's now moved into working more with um, people who are moving overachievers into high achievers. Mm -hmm. So it's people that are just on like teetering on the edge of burnout and either have a sense that it's coming or are about to go and do it or have pulsed into it. And so these are people that are likely, yeah, like athletes or, or, you know, um, people who are working in corporate worlds at a very, very high level who have large amounts of, like, responsibility in terms of budget and employees. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah, the other end of the spectrum is, yeah, people who have retired mm-hmm. and they just never need to work again. And they're, like, they're in this place where they're, like, you know, I just, 
there's more for me here or um, I want to be, I'm working with a lot of parents as well, whether they just want to be a better parent, I want to be able That's to beautiful. show up differently for my children. And so the common thread is, is emotional resilience and capacity mm-hmm. along with kind of meaning, like uh, how we make meaning as humans and deeper meaning and purpose. Mm. Beautiful. Um, so as, yeah, more context for listeners, as we just uh, mentioned last year, I took part in this, powerful and I think honestly life-changing 400-hour container with you here in Bali. Yeah. And I thought maybe to begin with, we could imagine that we're sitting in in the Charlotte together and mm. you're about to open up a circle for a group. Maybe some of them are leaders in the tech space and they, they're curious to know why they should care about breathwork. Um, and so how might you frame some of the benefits and mechanisms of this specific form of breathwork for them? Yes, I, I really like the sort of like the lead in here. It's really useful. So, <laughs> You've done, uh, done this a thousand I've times. I'm <laughs> leading circle tonight as it happens, uh-huh. but it's Wednesday. Um, yeah, so yeah, I think it's a great question. Like, why is breathing important? Why, why would anyone really care about it? And, you know, ultimately, I start with the first kind of thing that we're breathing between 23 and 26,000 times a day. That's a lot. It's the, it's the one substance that we consume the most of is, is air. Uh, and the exchange of gases of oxygen and carbon dioxide are fundamental for all of our body systems. Um, much more than that, it governs the functioning of our nervous system and subsequently our endocrine system. So the balance of our inhale to our exhale is changing our state. And if we just kind of leave it there as a statement, um, maybe I can expand on why that's happening. Mm. But ultimately, the, the volume um, and ratio of movement of oxygen is changing the functionality of our nervous system and subsequently our endocrine systems, our glands, mm-hmm. which is changing our blood chemistry. So our breathing is directly changing our blood chemistry from a bottom-up approach. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, if we get quite capable of observing and changing state through breathing, we get a lot more capable of, of living, mm. of responding effectively to stimulus in life. Mm-hmm. So essentially our capacity to breathe fully dynamically and and uh and in yeah in in ways that we can change it rapidly um allows us to meet the challenges of life a lot more easily. Mm-hmm. And so the applications for that are huge. Um and so circling back to kind of the frame, um, I think it's also worth mentioning that the impacts of that on body systems. So it's going to change digestion. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to change our heart rate variability, obviously lung capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, our lymphatic system is, is also pumped in su- somewhat by our breath. Our movement patterns will shift and change over time with the functioning of our three diaphragms and our intercostal muscles. Mm-hmm. As an example, like our shoulder or hip mobility will be affected by how we breathe mm-hmm. because we're breathing 23 to 26,000 times a day. And if we don't breathe fully or deeply into an area, mm. we forget to essentially the body. The body's really good at remembering things. And unfortunately, it can remember also shitty patterns of breathing. Right. Um, and so, you know, then circling back to the question, like, why is this modality you know, useful? Well, you know, humans, we really want to be able to breathe fully and dynamically. Um, there's a variety of reasons why we don't. Some of it's learned behavior from our childhood. Some of it's single event trauma, like the avalanche that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. But the essence is once we've established that there are maladaptive patterns of breathing in our client, we want to be able to effectively guide them more rapidly back to a fuller, more easeful inhale and exhale. Mm. 
And there's essentially two ways that we can do that. One is using a much more sort of focused, conscious, mind-based approach, which would be in the realm of like a pranayamic technique or using the mind to control the breath. So inhale, hold, uh, inhale, hold for four, exhale for four, hold for four at empty, and then inhale for four again. So we're basically box breathing and we're using a four count on each of the four parts of the breath. And that's a mind-based approach and that will have some effect. And that will very much create stability and awareness of breath and awareness of the body. And it's um, those techniques are really good for continuing to create foundations in breath and nervous system. And, and what I notice is they don't necessarily have the opportunity for us to create that more fuller dynamic inhale to exhale that we're really seeking. So what we've been working with both kind of like me personally and then the team for some time is exploring these ideas of connected breathing, which is in eliminating the inhale and the exhale and moving to just one loop of breath with also guidance and body work. And yeah, ultimately what's been born here is, is this technique that we've called facilitated breath repatterning or FBR for short. And FBR, what we found is it's an opportunity to guide breathers into non-ordinary states of consciousness. Mm-hmm. So we're changing the way the brain is functioning um, we've got a variety of different hypotheses, which we're going to test. Um, but ultimately what we're aware of, it disables the default mode network, which is the way that we're normally ordinarily thinking. Mm-hmm. It disables some of our protective mechanisms that we have in place to stop unconscious material surfacing. And it allows that material to surface and for those incomplete reflexes in the body to be felt and experienced and then essentially completed or integrated. And so it's essentially we're using trance states to alter our state of awareness, move into a non-ordinary state, and then feel and experience something from our past that is still kind of like a ghost in the system. Mm. And then it, it essentially completes. And in that completion, what happens is um, we have a full of more useful dynamic breath, but also our perception of the world has changed. Mm. Mm. Okay, wow. There's, there's, there's a lot there. There's, uh, okay, we're probably going to spend the next hour unpacking what you just said. Yeah. Um, I, I think I want to circle back to two things that you mentioned mm. in the clients that you work with. You say they kind of come to you because they want to increase capacity, resilience, and kind of ultimately find more meaning in life. So maybe you could begin by just defining those two terms, capacity and resilience, maybe from both a biological perspective and then also what that means for them in their life. Yeah, thank you. So I think in ter- if we were just speaking about breath, we could say like capacity is, is how big our inhale and exhale can be. Mm-hmm. Um, and we could measure that in a volume term. Um, and resilience would be kind of two things, maybe how long we could sustain that for or subsequently how long we could move back into a baseline uh, or like a equilibrium or resting state. Mm-hmm. Um, and also I think, you know, our capacity is how long we can be exposed to stress or challenge. Uh, and then resilience is like how easily we can return back to homeostasis balance, our baseline, and then be exposed to that again. Um, and, you know, kind of with that, there are some things that are natural challenges in life and some things that are just systemic issues that need, ch- need to change for us. So, you know, like we can make a variety of different analogies. The one I think about is like swimming as an example, like with or against a stream. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just acknowledging like, you know, how one way is easeful and one way isn't. And just looking at breath from the same kind of elements of capacity and resilience. Mm-hmm. Like there's just a time you just got to like stop. You just got to get out of the river. 
<laughs> so, so, you know, so there's some bigger pieces with yeah. my clients sometimes where we just look at like the ultimately like a way they are living right. and how it's actually impossible because they are literally swimming against the stream. Right. And there's no amount of capacity or resilience increases yeah. that are going to enable them to do what they're attempting to do. Right. Um, and this is part of finding deeper humility. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe it's changing environment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, you know, not only environment, but also maybe even the culture of the workplace that they're either in or leading, totally. um, which can be like a, a bit unnerving sometimes when we unpack the fact that ultimately someone's like living in a way that isn't really serving them, mm-hmm. uh, in fundamentally creating like uh, a level of allostatic stress in their nervous system mm-hmm. that's just like compounding and then creating, going to create basically long-term illness. Yeah. And I, I would imagine that's also a two-way street in that as they get more greater levels of nervous system regulation, that those changes in their life or maybe their work culture start to kind of organically shift as well. Yeah. And I love that point, Johnny, because for me, it's actually more about like not creating the mind-based cognitive solution, but it's about creating the shift in the body and the system where they actually have a desire to choose something that's more aligned to the natural quality in themselves. Mm-hmm then I'm going to fix my external environment, which is going to impact my internal environment. Mm-hmm. So ultimately what we're doing is we're working on the foundational internal structures of how they sense and perceive and feel themselves. Mm-hmm. Interception. Yeah. And then with that shift, naturally there's just a, an unfolding that wants to happen. Yeah. You know, I just, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. 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 And I think that that's a much more powerful internal motivation than the external motivation Mm-hmm. Um, of like, or you know, you know that this isn't serving me, and now I need to change it. Well, beating yourself up about it for some reason. Yeah, and also subsequently, like, the anchor is still present inside. Mm-hmm. Like it might be that they just switch. So it's like <laughs> you know they're switching from one environment, but they're moving to another one, and then oh look, the pattern recreate the same. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, completely. Yeah, beautiful. So another thing I want to touch on, you mentioned in your description that you're this, this repatterning of the three diaphragms of breath. Yeah, and uh, I imagine many listeners myself included, we're kind of taught in high school biology that there's only one diaphragm. Yeah. Can you briefly speak to like, what are the three diaphragms? Sure. Yeah. And, you know, we've got into like mechanics of breathing um, and, and explored it like at a lot of depth. We talk about three diaphragms, first one being the pelvic floor. It's a little, you know, I've been contemplating what, what do we call them, right? And so like the, the second diaphragm of the ribs is the one that you've spoken to, right? So a diaphragm is like... Just defined as like a, a thin sheet, essentially, that's likely taut or stretched. So, you know, there's diaphragms in industrial uh, engineering, as an example. Mm-hmm. And so our diaphragm attaches around our rib cage and as, you know, and it's a thin sheet of muscle, one. And that's at the rib cage. The pelvic floor is interwoven sheets of muscle. So they're, or they're interconnected and as many of them, it's not defined as one, but we call it one. And, um, and, and then in the in the throat, we've got the vocal cords, and you can hear them. They're they're actually cords, they're multiple, mm. and they're kind of like coming together and apart as I'm speaking and allowing the flow of, of breath to move out of me mm. and, and air to move out of me. And so air isn't moving in the pelvic floor, but breath is. And so it's breath is the movement of the you know muscles, organs, and viscera as air moves into the lungs and as the, those diaphragms move. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting then that we also have the intercostal muscles and the rib cage, and then those are mostly the muscles of breathing that we look at. So these three diaphragms and the intercostal muscles in the rib cage, and then we go into basically like 
like geeking out really hard, like two subcategories. And one is auxiliary muscles of movement that sometimes are used for breathing or additional. So the scalenes is an example in the front of the neck. But then we would look at muscles of movement that might be used in breathing, which is kind of like, then we're looking at a deeper maladaption. So this would be someone engaging their, their abdomen, like engaging their core muscles or mm-hmm. their QLs in the lower back to breathe. Mm-hmm. And so what we're looking for is these like cross-fired patterns in, specific, in very specific physical form mm-hmm. where someone is essentially over-efforting or using muscles that they don't need to to breathe. And it's uh, this is about deep physical systemic dysfunction mm-hmm. in, in, in a human. Yeah. Yeah, beautifully articulated. Um, and from there, yeah, I, I kind of want to maybe, I feel like we're going to be zooming the lens in and out a lot in this. Yeah. And just kind of coming back to the term breathwork, which has become super trendy in the last kind of two, three, four years. Yeah. Um, but it now means so many different things to different people and sometimes quite vague. And I kind of believe that what has emerged from your explorations and experiments with other body works, uh, other body workers, mm. is this kind of unique modality that you spoke to as being facilitated breath repatterning. Um, and so I'd love to dive in, like you, you just spoke to like repatterning, like the auxiliary muscles. What, what are you referring to when you say breath repatterning? And perhaps in that definition, how is it different from some of the other uh, things that people might refer to as, as breath work? Yeah, thanks so much, Johnny. Um, it's interesting because, like the the idea that breath looks like blowing up is is potentially true, and yet I, I'm so in it that I it's been a continuum for me. Right. <laughs> so people are like, "Oh, breath work," and I'm like, well, "It's been my literally my it's life." Been your life, but, but, yeah. You know, yeah. So it's like, wow, I've been really in this for a while. Yeah. Um, and with that, you know, I'm blind to the emergence of it. Like, I don't know how much it is. So, I like, you know, it's really in these moments, it's great to look at data and look at like, you know, how much is it being spoken about? And, you know, what, like, what are the hashtags? And, you know, what's coming alive? And yeah, I think you're absolutely accurate in the fact that like it is growing. And I think it's likely to actually go a bit exponential in the next couple of years as well. Um, and with that, there's a lot of, yeah, I mean, like, let's just be really honest and cut to the chase. Like, this is totally unregulated work. There's there's very little sort of like guidelines on how to practice safely or effectively. Mm-hmm. And um, we're in Bali, which is, you know, pretty open for a lot of things in terms of modalities. And so, you know, in even back home in Canada, this is really unregulated and a lot of people can practice breath work. And so it's interesting to look at the sort of scope or what's available in terms of breath. And to give you an example, you could go online and do like a seven-day online course and become a breathwork facilitator. And basically in that time of seven days, you'll, you'll essentially learn very little. Or you can do, you know, like a six-month, one-year time with us here in Bali. And in that time, you're going to go into the depths of subtleties of the mechanics of breathing and a lot of other psycho somatic and psychological elements that are present as well, including patterns of behavior and relating. Mm-hmm. So there's a huge different like sort of framework uh, that, well, and like lots of different flavors that are available as well. Um, also, it's interesting that breathwork has by its very nature a side effect of creating some pretty altered states of awareness and consciousness. Mm-hmm. So it tends to also, you know, gravitate towards people who have a, a sort of a, maybe a new age spiritual uh, appreciation or bias, mm-hmm. um, which can then be a bit tricky because it doesn't actually validate in terms of a scientific approach. Mm-hmm. And one of the challenges that I've seen is like my story 
and my journey isn't applicable to pretty much anyone else because it's mine. And, you know, I'm really blind if I think, oh, breathwork worked for me, so it'll work for you. And, you know, we see it right now a lot in Instagram specifically with like, I healed myself with green juices, so then everyone needs green juices. And, you know, the reality is it's just not true. Mm-hmm. And and it's sometimes a bit challenging to admit that, but, you know, that my what, what worked for me probably wouldn't work for somebody else. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, with that, you know, it's interesting to see. I kind of approached it with like, okay, this has been really effective for me. I've noticed it's been really effective for most of my clients. I noticed that there's a few people it's not working for, mm-hmm. and now I'm asking why. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that was kind of the inquiry, and that's been the inquiry for the last two years. Mm-hmm. And so I, I kind of came in here before I was thinking about it, John, and it was like, two, you know, if we've got so many more answers than two years ago. Like when I first dropped into this podcast, I think mm-hmm. about like the amount of hours I've spent. I've probably got another 2,000 hours of working with clients mm-hmm. since we last spoke. Um, we've got another 35, six practitioners that we've trained. Um, even through that process of observation, there's been so much more that we've learned. Mm. And ultimately, I've just got more questions. <laughs> you know, so it's like, it's, and it's great because, you know, we've learned more and we understand more. And, but there's just so much more that is, 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 I have this desire to understand and, yeah. and to concretely know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it is that inquiry into like, what is the concrete knowing? Like, how can we concretely know what is the changes we're creating with breathwork? Yeah. Yeah, and I think that that is exactly what actually drew me to you in this particular modality is that kind of scientific quality and clinical approach to this where you're, you're kind of testing different hypotheses based on, on what you're seeing. And, and there's now um, Breath Lab that's kind of emerging here in Bali as well, yeah. which I'd love to kind of talk about yeah, sure. down the line as well. Um, and, and yeah, I, I kind of want to, like there are certain things that emerged for me during the training that were just like, wow, this is, this is such a fascinating hypothesis that if this is true and if we can kind of back this with data, like this is potentially like revolutionary. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. and that's, that's, I mean, ultimately that's why I, I'm so excited to have this conversation with you and yes, why yes. I'm like committing to spending a good chunk of the next chapter of my life exploring this as well. Yeah. Um, and I think one of those is something that you alluded to earlier, which is this idea of like incomplete reflexes that are stored in the limbic brain. Yes. And and so could you could you maybe speak to what is your your thesis for how these reflexes connect to maladaptive patterns of breathing? Yeah. Thank you, Johnny. So um I spent a lot of years studying uh like the sort of theories of trauma, essentially, you know, post-avalanche. And I was really drawn to the work of uh, Dr. Stephen Porges and Dr. Peter Levine. And the work of Peter Levine has been really powerful in my own healing journey, his work of somatic experiencing. Mm -hmm. And what I noticed is it was, um, there was more. And uh, (laughs) I was curious about exploring that more. But essentially what I was noticing is when I or a human is exposed to more than they are capable of being with, they have a tendency, we have a tendency to buffer it. Right. And it's a really wise system. I kind of refer to it in a little, very simple analogy is a fuse. It's like a fuse gets, gets flicked and we buffer. And then the idea is that we might store it and process it out later. And 
you know, without going into polyvagal theory in too much depth, or maybe we can, I don't know, but like just initially as an inquiry, it's like the idea is the first thing that we would do is run away. And if our run away isn't successful, then we would fight. And if our fight isn't successful, then we would freeze and we would play dead. And then after that, there's a process of coming out of that. And it's the process of coming out of that that's essential for completing it. So it's not actually the, the, the flight, fight, freeze response that would create the incomplete reflex. Mm. It's how did we go about reorientation mm. and how do we go about reorientating to our body and actually having that sense of relief that it's over. Mm-hmm. And it's in that moment, it's my understanding that, you know, we can code the memory as either being complete and the breathing rhythm returns to its natural blueprint or we don't. And if we don't, because we're not safe and, we're, and we've never had a, a container where we can process that out and get to like this deep felt sense of safety, the breathing rhythm will start to adapt. Mm. And it will adapt based on what the event might have been that we've been exposed to and the severity of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when we kind of overlap that with ACEs, the Adversity Childhood Experience Study, we're starting to look at the fact that lower rates of emotional intelligence, emotional control, potentially even like, you know, conscientiousness are all related to adversity, early adversity in in our childhood experience. And so we can see that the setting up, if you will, of the amygdala and the limbic system is founded in our childhood and then allows us to either be able to process or not. And there's still so much curiosity here for me because I think like some people that have a lot of adversity in childhood actually create a lot of capacity with it. So it's just, it's not like a zero or one. This isn't a binary. There's so much nuance and complexity that's present here. Some people that go through adversity come out incredibly resilient. Some people that go through adversity come out with such a narrow window of tolerance, a narrow window to be with discomfort that it's debilitating. And I I don't know the answer to that. Mm. And I don't know if I ever will, but I'm going to spend likely the rest of my life researching it <laughs> and i'm excited for that yeah and that, it is a fascinating question of like what what makes the difference between people that are able to move through and grow stronger like that kind of post-traumatic growth idea yeah versus people who are kind of stuck in that narrow window of tolerance yeah and fragility yeah and one of the things that we've been exploring is this idea of what we just kind of generally call the way mm. and the way is this ability to observe ourselves in a process without gripping to the meaning making or the story. Mm-hmm. And so it's this it's a it allows us to observe both movements which could be convulsive in nature and also breathing rhythms that could be oscillating or wobbling or like very very rapid. Mm-hmm. And if we can somehow stay in the space of like what we call the witness or the observer whilst we're going through convulsion movement or r- rhythmical breathing mm-hmm. there's this kind of opportunity for those experiences to be felt um, fully. And for us to sort of stay with them and for them to then soften afterwards and then this kind of sense of relief that comes up. And so, I mean, in essence, what we're doing is like we're we're kind of watching trauma in the body through breathing and movement. Mm -hmm. And then we're allowing someone to soften into relaxation. Mm. And then we're doing it again. Mm, (laughs) So, I mean, like the idea is like then that sort of, you know, with FBR, the curiosity is like, um, concepts, you know, from Levine and Porges around like titration and pendulation. How much do we go into mm-hmm. and how many breaks do we give the, give the system to stay with it, mm-hmm. as it were? Yeah, no, that, that's powerful. And, and as you're speaking, there's a specific example that comes to mind that might help kind of ground this for listeners too. Um, in our training, there was um, one, of, one of the trainees had this very powerful experience during one of your kind of translations where 
she brought breath down into the kind of pelvic area into the hips and had this in her share afterwards had this realization of just how much safety she felt in her body because of breath being moved into that space yes and i think that's what is so fascinating i think for me to explore as well is like the like mapping the these breathing rhythms onto different felt experiences in the body and the patterns that we see there totally yeah i mean it's it's so like for me it's just like some of these things are so obvious right if if we look at someone's breathing and they don't breathe into the upper chest and lung fully and deeply they're not going to be able to oxygenate very well Mm -hmm. like that's just the reality and so the vibrancy and fullness of their breath it just isn't present and you can see it Mm -hmm. and if that's the case there's going to be a certain quality of exhaustion in their life Mm -hmm. and similarly the example that you give if someone doesn't breathe down to the pelvis and down ground themselves fully and deeply i mean their digestive function is going to be affected and then the next piece is kind of mapping in like the feeling state of their own experience when breath is moving in there and so, yeah, the next kind of curiosity is how we're mapping these different breathing rhythms to different feeling states mm-hmm. and how we're doing that in ourselves. And then we're doing that with our team and with each other. And then we're seeing it in clients. And so I think the research is part of the research in the next you know, couple of years will be to, to look at the breathing rhythms and then to measure what's going on in the brain mm-hmm. and see how clear we can get on brain activity to breathing rhythm. Mm-hmm. And then also looking at cortisol levels, blood chemistry, and HRV. Mm-hmm. So just some like interesting metrics that we can assess whilst we're taking people through these very specific rhythms. Now, to do that research, we need people to be able to modulate these breathing rhythms, which a lot of our team can. But it's really interesting. What I notice in the, in the realm of neuroscience is often the neuroscientists aren't the ones who are also doing the practice. Like, so they'll, they'll study, you know, Tibetan monks as an example, right? But they don't know how to get there. They don't know the way. They don't know. <laughs> they feel just as dysregulated as it yeah. else. <laughs> they're like, look at these Tibetan monks. These guys are Zen. This is amazing. Let's study them. And then they study them and they, they learn a bunch of stuff, but none of it's been lived experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we've got Satori as our head of research, right? And she has been practicing for a decade as well. She's amazing. Yeah. And so she has this curiosity around the embodied feeling state and then like tracking in the, in the brain what's mm-hmm. going on. Mm-hmm. So we're now... You know, we don't have research grants. We're self-funded. So we're in this totally amazing situation where we fund ourselves. We can explore whatever we want. We're not tied to any, any sort of, you know, institution. Mm-hmm. And at the set, so we're free to really explore whatever we're doing. Mm-hmm. We're the ones doing it because we're actually really fascinated by it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I think we're creating this amazing space here in Bali where we're going to like start really exploring this breathing rhythm changes me into this brain state. Mm. Yeah. And that's, that's something that, um, Satori speaks to you really clearly that I think is worth double clicking on for listeners is, is the actual mechanism, um, that increases neuroplasticity and, and kind of allows these breathing rhythms that you've been talking about to shift in a lasting way. And I think that's maybe worth like elaborating on slightly. Like what is that mechanism as you currently understand it? Yeah. Thanks so much, Johnny. I think the first thing just defining neuroplasticity briefly, um, neuro for neuron plastic plasticity for changeable malleable our nervous systems malleable mm-hmm. and i think you know we're coming from out of a you know a, a fairly disastrous period in western culture and civilization where we re- we believed that we were sort of fixed and now we're starting to understand how changeable we really are including the brain mm-hmm. and what we're understanding is you know whilst the brain is still growing in its 20s it's still creating you know heb's law is that we're still firing and wiring together yeah and we're making these neural connections it's so powerful 
Yeah. And what I'm fascinated about is, is they fire and switch both ways. We can make them or we can break them. And what is the energy bond it takes to make or break these new neural pathways and connections mm. that creates like an opportunity for open thinking and even the pulsation between the left and the right brain hemispheres, how quickly we can switch. And so it's, it's this dynamic thinking that I suspect is also linked to dynamic breathing. Mm. And yeah, so I think uh, just just mapping all of that together kind of come to this like exploration around how is it that this breathing rhythm is creating the opportunity for the neuroplastic changes to be a lot more rapid. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when we come back earlier to the conversation around like left, we had sort of like these mind-based approaches to changing breathing, mm -hmm. which then changed thought. And then we've got these other, this other category, right, of, of trance state. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we've gone into a trance state. And in this state, somehow we are more neuroplastic, mm -hmm. right? So the curious, that's sort of the hypothesis. Okay, I'm, I'm more malleable. Um, when I'm doing body work, as an example, I notice that the body work and the shifts that I'm changing in, or that I'm making in someone's like physical body either sets or it doesn't. And the set point is like this curiosity thing. It's like, okay, mm -hmm. why did that land mm. this week? You know, and it's done. Like, so the uh, example is it, someone's got a stiff left shoulder, they go to the physio, they've got all of these adaptive patterns to not let it move. And then they come in and they do a breathwork journey. We, de uh, we disable the, de the default mode network. So we make them essentially more neuroplastically malleable. Mm. We then mobilize the shoulder and then they, when they come out of the breath journey at the end, they're like, I've got full function and movement back. So what we're noticing with breath work is we're moving people into these non-ordinary states of consciousness and then they're becoming more neuroplastic, which means things are, things are literally like repatterning, mm -hmm. which some people would call healing, but I, I like to call repatterning because it's, like, it's a little bit more clinical and scientific, especially in Bali. So yeah, like the, the mechanisms in the brain, I think what we're doing is we're following that previous flight, fight, freeze, and then thaw response. Mm -hmm. So we're allowing, we're taking someone through that experience such that the barrier into the sub and unconscious, which is usually like pretty solid, is now a little bit more permeable. Mm -hmm. And so it's just allowing uh, different forms of memory and different lived and felt sense experiences to surface. Yep. Um, so that's kind of the hypothesis. So essentially what we're doing is the low brain and limbic system and midbrain, which is governing a lot of the subconscious and unconscious processes, breathing being one of them, mm -hmm. is actually now open. So yeah. we're now able to go in there and we're changing this breathing rhythm, which is the breathing rhythm that people breathe most of the time. So 23 to 26,000 breaths a day. I can breathe consciously. I bring my mind to my breath and I can change it which is exhausting because I don't have any energy or bandwidth to do anything else. So it's great, it's great that breathing subconscious. And the problem is because it's governed by the subconscious, I want to change my subconscious breathing pattern. I want to change the way I breathe when I'm walking or when I'm sleeping. So I think what we've now found is that we have a very clear entry point into changing humans' subconscious breathing pattern. Mm -hmm. And as we change the subconscious breathing pattern, what we're noticing is the markers of their health are dramatically increasing, one of which is HRV. And we're noticing that it's like off the charts improvements compared to anything else that we're practicing. Mm -hmm. So it's like, yeah, the lowest hanging fruit, easiest slash most silver bullet approach to, mm. to, to basically creating 
Yeah, greater greater elements of, of capacity and resilience, improvement in lung capacity, HRV and digestion that we can see uh, compared to any other thing that we're trying personally and as a collective here as, as a group of facilitators. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's amazing. Um, and the other thing before we kind of switch gears a little bit, I wanted mm-hmm. to just mention, again, listeners might be probably familiar with Wim Hof events, maybe they've kind of attended a holotropic workshop. Um, and there's obviously different types of this like kind of state of conscious consciousness altering breathwork. And could you maybe touch on what are some of the the risks that people might not be aware of with some of these other forms of breathwork that maybe aren't uh, rooted in such a deep understanding of the human nervous system? Yeah, thanks so much, Johnny. Yeah, I'm pretty outspoken on this one. Uh, you know, most people that come through a training with me or, or maybe even spend a bit of time with me know um, my perception on this. And essentially, you know, when we start changing this, these um, areas of the brain, areas of the low brain through breathing rhythms, I think there needs to be a, a very good understanding of how to facilitate and what to facilitate. And coming back to the idea of polyvagal theory, if we're facilitating someone into a space of too much or too long, uh, without proper time to go into that relaxation response, we're not serving them. So essentially, if we were to think about the flight, fight, um, freeze and thaw response as a circle, mm-hmm. each one of those being a quarter, and if we're not aware of that, we're not allowing adequate time for each one, we're probably not serving the client. So what that would look like is someone driving somebody like very, very hard in a big voluminous breathing rhythm for a long period of time without giving them an adequate rest and integration period at the end. Mm-hmm. And this is sort of where the practice becomes a little bit, well, a little bit highly skillful and a little bit more like an art where we have to read multiple factors simultaneously, like the pulse, mm-hmm. body tone, eye twitch, mm-hmm. three diaphragms, intercostal function, mm-hmm. movement patterns, and get a read on the nervous system and where it's at in terms of its window of tolerance and what, are the defensive mechanisms that are currently coming alive in this person. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, it's like learning how to play with the defensive mechanisms such that they can soften so the person can find safety again. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, beautifully put. Um, and I'm glad that you mentioned that kind of capacity of reading the signs. And and, and actually something that well, I was impressed by many things during the training last year, but I think besides your patience for answering my <laughs> questions, <laughs> which question. I definitely... Yeah. Would have been annoying at some points. Um, but yeah, I, I love like you just have this capacity to read and interpret human body language, like both in and out of the breath. And for me, it's it's like this almost kind of Sherlock Holmes like capacity to read these subtle cues in muscle tone or endocrine system in complete strangers and, and then making remarkably precise guesses about how that's then showing up in their life to the point where it looks almost like magic, like for someone yeah. who doesn't really know what's going on. Totally. <laughs> um, so I'm curious, like, how do you think this capacity emerged in you? And could you give any examples for things that you might be paying attention for, say, when a new client walks in through the door? Yeah, thank you so much. Ah, So I'll start with the, the last piece because it's easier. Um, <laughs> sure. So... When I start working with a new client, there's a lot of information that I'm, that I'm kind of assessing. And, and it sort of, it, it, I mean, some of it depends on, on the way that they've, uh, first come into contact with me. But I mean, I'm looking at like, what's the medium with which they got in touch with me and what's the inquiry. And then like, I'm going to ask a few questions around how I can best serve them. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And then once we've gone through a dialogue on that, that's probably going to give you some immediate understanding of their patterns of behavior, just in how quickly they respond to my messages, what's the length of their response, what's some of the language that they use. Are they using words like should or try or can't? Um, yeah, and it's just going to give me a flavor immediately of the mindset. Mm-hmm. And then I'm, okay, on arrival, if someone comes to say, do like a two-hour private session with me, I'm looking, you know, when a client first arrives in my space, which might be, you know, if I share this, it might be a bit daunting for people who come work with me, but it's just the reality of what's happening. Is, and, you know, and this kind of comes a bit back to Malcolm Gladwell's work on blink, right? It's like, what do we take in, in the blink of an eye? How much are we looking at? And in the moment a client comes into the room, I'm looking at, you know, the time with which they arrived, how they open the door, how they walk in, how they greet me, what's the qualities in their eyes? How's the eye set? Is the eye darting or moving? What's the white above and below the eye? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I'm looking at facial tone. So I'm reading like, what is the facial muscles? What's the tone? Uh, what's the speed and haste with which they're moving? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, when they sit down, I'm obviously looking at like posture and breathing rhythm, structural alignment, skeletal alignment, like all of those subtleties as well. And then we're going to have a brief conversation and we we'll ask a few questions and just get more information about that person in their life. Um, and so before they've hit the table, I've made a lot of hypothesis and I might be totally wrong mm. but as you kind of mentioned I'm getting better at getting really good at this <laughs> and so <laughs> and so normally by the time someone kind of lies on the table on the treatment table I've got an understanding of, of what might be some of the mechanisms that might be present and how they're going to breathe mm-hmm. and this has been a curiosity like you know when certain people show up in certain ways they have certain breathing rhythms and this is what we're getting good at uh, mapping mm. um, yeah and so that, that's kind of all the information that we've received. It's that's going to give me indications as to how I can serve the client effectively, mm-hmm. right? So, what's the quality of the playlist I'm going to bring through? So, like, how vibrant is the music going to be? Based on that kind of four parts of the circle that I shared earlier around the flight, fight, freeze responses and the thaw, mm-hmm. how much time am I going to give to each one of those segments for this client? So, you know, we've got you know someone that's. It, you know, it really depends on what's showing up in the client. You know, if they're incredibly high tone, highly strung, highly caffeinated on the edge of burnout with adrenal fatigue, probably not going to drive them too hard. Mm-hmm. You know, probably going to keep the first section pretty mellow and then allow deep rest and relaxation. Mm-hmm. So th- those are some of the things that I'm looking at. And I think every human has the capacity to read humans. Hmm. Um, and so... There's one other piece that we're kind of reading, and that's the feeling sense. And this is where mm. I'm, I'm, I'm mindful of how I speak about this because um, there's a tendency for – I think there's a very scientific explanation for the feeling state. I think I can feel my own endocrine system and my own internal landscape. And I also believe I have a certain ability to, to feel into somebody else's energetics when they're near me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's based on magnetic resonance. Mm-hmm. And I'd love to test that so it doesn't sound quite so out there. Right. There's also great research on emotional contagion and kind of co-regulation. Sure. I think there's... Yeah. And Measuring the Immeasurable is a really great book, which is a collection of studies around like mm. some of these things where people are measuring the energetic field. Right. right and right. it's just, unfortunately, like it's not quite compelling enough in double-blind studies to be able to effectively be like, this is what's happening. Yeah. We can kind of feel it, but we can't speak to it. But when I look at someone's rib cage and I'd be like, do you see how it's not like flaring on the sides? Yeah. Everyone can go, yes. You know, so, <laughs> you know, as you experience in the training, we yeah. teach from what we can see and what we know yeah. categorically. Yeah. And what like if 10 people looked around and I said, look, there's no breath in the pelvis, we'd all go, oh yeah, no breath in the pelvis, right? That feeling sense is something else that we're, we're going to research. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious about it. And I, I think we can probably get some really good answers on that one as well. Mm-hmm. 
So that's kind of what we're assessing. And to answer the other part of your question, why am I, why am I getting good at that? I think, you know, there's a few reasons. One of them is because I've spent so long watching humans breathe. Mm. And I, and I, you know, would like to sort of humbly admit if anybody spends the same amount of time with the lens that I give you, know, you or any other practitioner, mm-hmm. it's likely they'll be able to spot things really quickly. Right. So I think that's one thing. And I just, I don't want to make myself too special here. The other one is that I was exposed to uh, a lot of adversity in my childhood. Mm-hmm. And so on the ACEs score, I'm like a nine out of 10. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where I'm also curious as to like, how did I get to here? Like, how did I make it? Right? So that, that does kind of surprise me that I got this far. Um, and so one of the things that I believe is for adaptive strategies, when I was a child, I learned how to read people really well. Um, and I think, you know, if we go into the mystical, if you believe in astrology and having a chart read and having like a full chart read, then there's an opportunity to recognize it's also present in certain, some of the elements that may or may not be true. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's also that. So I think there's a confluence of, of a variety of different things. One is like adversity in childhood that led me to have adaptive strategies to be able to read people mm-hmm. and likely specifically in my home. Uh, and then subsequently with that, um, yeah, a lot of practice at watching humans breathe mm-hmm. and, and touch and body work. And you know, I think a lot of that also comes back to the fact that I've had really good teachers mm. um, and just, you know, working yeah. with really good teachers and then just investing, yeah, like a lot of money into touch work and like exploring things and being exposed here in Bali to just great body workers. Eddie Alm is an example and Ash Parkhouse, just like absolute weapons in their field. Mm. Um, these are guys who I love working with. They've put me through some of the most painful experiences on a massage table <laughs> I've ever had. Um, and I think, mm. you know, this can, and just, again, just surrounding myself with people that are very, very skilled and have a lot of curiosity. Mm. Yeah. I, I kind of have this image of like, like a chess player who after playing thousands and thousands of games, the intuition almost starts to um, develop to the point where you, they can't really explain why they're making the moves they are, but it's yeah. just because they have these like blueprints inside their mind that yeah. have been built up over time. Yeah, I, I love teaching because I have to explain what I'm seeing and why I'm doing what I'm doing. You know, and people are like, why did you facilitate the neck then? Like, what was it about the neck that said? Now, I I think intuition is tricky because there's two things. One is it, it could simply be that we're seeing a lot in our subconscious. And we, as you said, we can't really put voice to what it is that we know within us Mm -hmm. and what our knowing is coming from the fact that we've seen so many things subconsciously we've summed them and then we've given an answer based on that Mm -hmm. now if that's intuition then it's very it's very logical and it's very cognitive and it's you know and what i'm more curious around is the intuition that's uh, more based around the feeling sense which is like purely like I visualize something, my endocrine system responds in a certain way, my feeling state changes, and then I follow that. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. No, <laughs> I, I, I love that. And, and I think one of the moments that I was, or many of the moments that I was like blown away during the training was during what you call these, these breath translations, which I think really kind of distinguish the power of reading the breath and then bringing through the appropriate adjustments that either kind of surface or contain these stored reflexes. Yes. Um, and so maybe again, like I'd invite you and our listeners to imagine that there's a, there's a client and let's say it's like a female CEO. She's, uh, feels somewhat dysregulated. Maybe she feels anxiety. Maybe there's like kind of edging on burnout. Um, and then based on this information alone, both how might you imagine her breathing pattern to present? And then what type of kind of facilitations or adjustments would you consider? bringing through in this translation yeah big thanks jenny yeah so the, the translation is essentially relying 
I breathe it down and we're all observing how breath is moving. And then as I make adjustments, we observe how the breath moves again. Yeah. And you're kind of sharing your perspective in real time. Yeah. As, as the breath so I'm, is changing. I, yeah. I'm dialoguing. Okay. This is what I see now. Then we adjust. Then this is what I see now. The thing with breathing is it's dynamic. And the analogy is, is like we're fixing the plane while it's flying. <laughs> Right. So it's like it's flying along and we've got to make an adjustment and then notice how it it flies differently. And we keep making those adjustments. So there's a lot that we can see initially. um, And then what we want to do is just follow how it lands, because it might be that, you know, after three or four adjustments of the breathing that we've already hit the top end of the of the breather's ability that day. And then there's just a containment that's required. So you touch into one piece is like we're either with FBR, we're either opening or containing. And the foundation of that is basically three principles that we're looking at in the breath. So the first one is the steadiness. And we want to see how steady is the breath. And steady means, is it connecting consistently? Or is the breather either um, dropping out or pausing at the top or the bottom of the breath so it's not looping anymore? Mm -hmm. Or are they pausing for extended periods of time to to find themselves again? Mm Once we've got steadiness established, and that might take, you know, a couple of weeks. So, the, I mean, that's the first inquiry with, with the kind of translation that you've given me. But I'll, I'll go through the three protocols and then we'll come mm-hmm. back. So Great, yeah. steadiness. Then the next one that we're looking at is the shape. And the shape of the breath is kind of, we've touched upon it. Where are they breathing? Are they breathing in the pelvis or in the chest? Or all the way from the pelvis up through the chest. And in terms of the shape of the breath, we'd like to see that the diaphragm muscle moves down into the abdomen and then the intercostal muscles activate. So breath fills like a glass of water from the bottom up. And then what we're looking at is the speed. And the speed of the breath ideally will be variable. So it could be slower, it could be fast, but we'd like to see dynamism. And so ultimately we want to see steadiness with a shape that may change, but could be from the pelvis to the top of the ribcage and this speed that is also variable. And if we're seeing that in a breather, then they're likely functioning very well in life and life's still difficult. Uh, so, (laughs) So they're just playing it on an easier level, I think is ultimately it. So, yeah, with the breather that you mentioned, like we've got, you know, a CEO, uh, I think you mentioned female CEO, just for context, and maybe they're on the edge of burnout. And so there's a lot of things that that could be. It could be that they don't have the lung initial capacity mm-hmm. for what they're attempting to do. And how that might show up is in a lack of malleability in the intercostal muscles. Mm-hmm. So the rib cage just simply isn't moving. And one of the reasons that might be is because the diaphragm attachments underneath the rib cage are kind of a little bit rigid. Mm. And that is common on occasion with humans because of fear. Mm. And so there's a, an inability to fully inhale. We might also see that there's a slight blockage in the vocal cords in the throat because they're not 100% safe in using their voice. So what that might mean is that they've had a pattern of behavior from childhood where they can't fully inhale up through the upper lungs. And now they also notice that there's a slight hold in the vocal cords. And over time, that will lead to dysfunction in the breath. And then, you know, ultimately it is dysregulation in the nervous system. I just have a visual of any of your female CEO leaders <laughs> listening right now, checking their intercostal muscles yeah. in their <laughs> And this is one of the bizarre things is like, if we don't know about breathing, we just don't know what to look for. Yeah. Like when you think back to your first time you watched someone in connected breathing, mm-hmm. it's very likely you, you you just look like a human lying down, right? Right, and then what I love is after 
six weeks, we do the midterm exam, right? Mm-hmm. And then you can read breath accurately. Mm-hmm. You've been you've been given the lens with which to see through. Mm-hmm. And now you can see it. And the, the challenging thing is you can't unsee it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so now you can see humans in this way. You mm-hmm. see how they breathe and how they operate. Mm-hmm. And then from there, of course, you can decide how to land the facilitations. So, you know, with the female CEO, it may also be that there's a lack of breath moving down into the pelvis for a variety of different reasons. Mm-hmm. So what we're looking at is maybe limit, limit a variety of different limitations in the mechanics of breathing. And now the next inquiry is, okay, like this is present. It just is. We don't really need to know the story why. We could get into that and it might be effective, but likely not. All we want to do is create more volume on the inhale and more relaxation on the exhale. And with that, we want to see that this person is now able to activate more fully and deeply and relax more fully and deeply. And if they can do that, then likely they can apply themselves to the role that they're attempting to do with generally more ease. Mm-hmm. So they can show up more fully in their power and use their voice. And in the evening, they can downshift and let go and relax and then rest and get good recovery. Yeah, totally. Um, the other thing that's popped into my head, which is I think one of the most like, again, just like wild things that I witnessed during the training was uh, through the demonstration of what you call nerve flossing. And I know this is a kind of um, modality from another, from, from body work, yeah. but just witnessing some of the things that my own body and other bodies of, of clients and people in the training uh, that can come alive when you begin to nerve floss. So could you maybe just speak to what nerve flossing is and how it can be used in this yeah, context? Sure. Thanks, Jen. So yeah, there's, um, how do I go about that one? <laughs> well, there's a, yeah, I guess like when there's an incomplete reflex in the body, the body has a desire to run like a defrag program if you will right it wants to just like clean itself up mm. and it does that oftentimes through like these these very um fine motor firing uh twitches mm-hmm. um and sometimes it looked like a client's playing the piano right mm. and they're watching themselves with their hands move like they're playing the piano so that's an example of it but mm-hmm. essentially what we're doing is through breath we're disabling the default mode network and then we're inviting a movement pattern to come through that the body just wants to explore. Mm-hmm. And what it's doing is it's crossing over the branches of, of motor and sensory in the nervous system. Mm-hmm. So it's basically firing movement what and then sensing simultaneously at such a rapid rate that it's changing the map of the body in the brain. Mm-hmm. So we, mm-hmm. you know, one of the big misconceptions that I hear quoted often is that emotion or trauma is held in the body. In my opinion, it's not. Mm. And that might be controversial to some, and I'll explain why. It's because there's no memory in the cells mm. of the body. They don't actually have the capacity for memory. The specialized, the cells that are specialized for memory are in the brain. Mm-hmm. So the brain is where we remember. And, and so in the low brain and the midbrain, we remember movement patterns. And so it then the, the memory in the brain then changes the manifestation in the physical body such that we can see the limitation of the movement pattern, mm. but the memory is still in the brain. So it looks very much like the body is holding the trauma. And to a certain extent it is, but it's stored in the memory of the brain. So what we do <clears throat> is we, we essentially explore how the limb is moving. Mm. So what are the protective mechanisms that fire when we gently move the limb? And when we unweight the hand, does it want to grip or control? Or does it over-assist? Like, does it lift right off the treatment table? So we're working with the subtleties of the nervous system and we're exploring what are the incomplete reflexes or control patterns or movement patterns that are present in the limb. Mm -hmm. And we explore that. 
And we find that, oh, there's rigidity. This person just cannot actually allow the softness to come through, through fear. And it might be that we have to work up into the upper shoulder and get more breath moving into the chest, mm-hmm. say, before the arm starts to move. But then, yeah, we do this pattern of nerve flossing and then we step back. And what happens is this, we just kind of press start on the defrag and then you just watch as the limb does what it wants to do, right? This is the crazy bit. Yeah. And this is where, like, I suspect, you know, like a few hundred years ago, it would look like a possession or a, an exorcism. Right. right? And this is where it's really e- easy to say this is magic or, you know, this is a spiritual something else that's coming over and doing the work. But really, when we get into it, like, this is the foundations of the nervous system and the, and the brainstem mm. that's just wishing to move in a certain way to create a repatterning. Right. Right. Are there any um, particular reflexes or moments that have come alive in your breath work career that like stand out as being particularly wild or interesting? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's a great question. Um, and just like globally, there's, there's one where I, I, was, I was aware that I was going to bring this reflex up. It was a near drowning. Mm. So it was a client who had expressed that they'd had a near drowning and they were having like continuous flashbacks and, and memories of it. They tried a variety of different things and it, it hadn't worked, including like, therapy and EMDR. Mm. And, you know, those can be very, very effective for single event trauma uh, and fully support those. And they've got like a lot of different clinical research that backs them as well. But in this case, it just wasn't working. And so like using the power of breath and deep somatics, it can elicit a response. Um, and in this case, yeah, it was profound. Um, so this was like, yeah, just a, a really big uh, response that came through the physical body to to kind of relive that experience of near drowning mm-hmm. and then come out the other end. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of them, one of them, just there's two more that I speak to. One of them is, of course, my own. So my my own re- like sort of recovery was through that process of avalanche. Mm-hmm. Was was actually me reliving my avalanche experience three weeks later mm. in a treatment room in downtown Vancouver. And it was like one of the most wild things. Um, and, you know, I was with a, a highly skilled practitioner uh, who was coming through Levine's school and, you know, now is, is very, very um, well established in nervous system regulation. Mm-hmm. For both of us, it was like, we both afterwards wish we videoed it. She was like, that was amazing. <laughs> and so essentially I relived mm. the whole experience. Mm-hmm. And one of the most profound things afterwards that I noticed in my own body was that my peripheral vision was widened. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, you know, the nervous wow. system in the two branches, the sympathetic and parasympathetic, sympathetic narrows our field of vision and the parasympathetic is wide. Mm-hmm. And essentially, if we think about a grazing animal versus an animal holding in on threat, right. like we would have wide vision, parasympathetic vision. And so that's the other one thing that we can do consciously or subconsciously, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when we consciously change our field of vision to widen it, we yeah. actually activate our parasympathetic nervous system, yeah. which is really interesting for like using a smartphone because it's basically building sympathetic tone. Mm-hmm. Like every time mm-hmm. we look at our phone, we're narrowing our field of vision and like our HRV tanks. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that was really wild. I came out of that mm-hmm. treatment and I was like, wow, I can <laughs> see so wide again. And I was like, what is this work? That's amazing. And, yeah. Wow. Um, and then the third one, I think one of the biggest ones that I've worked with like quite consistently um, that has kind of a similar signature, the two different but similar, and it's breath into the pelvis mm. with with women, with female clients that I've worked with for child for childbirth, mm. cesarean, or also sexual assault. Mm. So essentially there's an incomplete reflex from a variety of different ways, be it like an abdominal surgery mm-hmm. or, or the, the reflexes of giving birth or through sexual assault. Mm. And either way, there is a movement pattern, likely with some sound, that wants to emerge. Mm-hmm. And 
yeah, it can be really big. Like it can be back arching and legs shaking and fists clenching and pounding and screaming. Mm. And so holding space for that has been a practice. (laughs) Testing your own capacity. Yeah, exactly. You know, one of the beautiful things about this work is it has continuously tested me. Right. Which of course requires me to be super reflective on like how much rest and relaxation and what are the, what, how much am I breathing? You know, how am I breathing? But holding someone through their deepest despair, you know, does take something out of me. Mm. Uh, Holding someone through rage and a rage response um, and them stepping back into their power, Mm. you know, it does. There's a certain energetic quality that that is needed of me. Mm -hmm. It's really deep and powerful work. And it it is, as you've experienced and witnessed, like it's fundamentally life-changing. And Mm. as a practitioner, yeah, it's a continued learning experience for me. And I'm I'm super grateful and, and appreciated and, and really humbled by my clients like mm. every week mm. um, on the continuum. And then, of course, with with, with uh, the team as well, as we guide each other more deeply and more fully, we're really exploring a lot. Mm. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah, and I can definitely resonate with what you're, what you're sharing around just how much it, you almost have to meet someone in the space of where they're at for them to feel safe, to kind of fully complete whatever's, whatever's there. Yeah. Exactly, Johnny. And I think this is where this, you know, I'd say it, you know, at least five times per training, but we're not making ice cream. It's like, you know, this is a really, we're, we're working with the deepest incomplete reflexes that humans have maybe buffered because they didn't feel safe to feel them mm. uh, or didn't perceive that they were safe to feel them. I don't probably what to say. And so, yeah, like it, it requires us to be like capable Mm. in ourselves of befriending whatever it is they're going into right so you know you're kind of circling back to like why is it that i'm capable of of you know guiding clients in this way it's likely because i've been through these harrowing experiences myself Mm. and i do have a lot of clients on the sort of more depressive end of the spectrum who are somewhat you know hopeful that i almost took my own life and here i am you know teaching Mm. and building in this way and yeah, I think it's still kind of landing for me. Like mm. it's still quite edgy and poignant in my own system, mm. you know, to be like, it wasn't that long ago that I was, that I would, well, you know, nine years ago, it's getting there now. But mm. like, you know, it was a while ago now, but it, that yeah. was still present for me. Yeah. Now, of course, life's very, very different. And so it's, it is, I think it's important that as, as practitioners, we have the capacity to take ourselves through big things. It's not essential. Right. Um, and it's not right. essential to have experienced, you know, the childhood that I had or, or you know, the life that I've had. But mm. And I think it's it certainly with some of the practitioners who have, you know, created that post-traumatic growth that you speak of, mm-hmm. they're some of the most powerful practitioners that we have on our team. Mm. Um, and I think that is fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really agree with that. Um, yeah, this feels like a good time to maybe zoom the lens out a little bit. Um in terms of like, why why does this work matter on a kind of societal and collective level? And, and I have some thoughts on this. Um, and one of the key themes is this idea that, that I think this kind of accumulated emotional debt or allosthetic load or however you want to um, talk about it is, is kind of at the root of a lot of like suffering that I think we see in the world and a lot of dysregulation that we see in society where people, you know, leaders, people in positions of power are projecting their own internal pain onto organizations, onto teams, maybe onto governments. And my opinion is that that is kind of part of what is creating the challenges that we're seeing unfolding in the world today. 
do you have have you thought about this much like what what's your perspective on yeah on this side of Thanks things so much, Shane. i've thought about it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> i imagine you have yeah i've thought about it a lot and i kind of you know it's interesting i kind of pulse in this in the, <laughs> into two directions and one of them you're like why does this matter and like the, my immediate reaction is like well it doesn't really and i suppose you know that's the first thing, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what it does in a minute. But the reason why I think it, it doesn't matter initially is because I think it's part of life, you know, and I think it's, it, I think it's just there's, a, there's an edge here where it's like I've been in the space of likely two years ago. I was like, I'm pretty sure this will change the world. And then I was in this place with like, okay, how do I share it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I had to get really clear and also be very careful that I wasn't, you know, operating from a place that I have to save or fix everything. Mm. Right. So it's like, you know, why does this matter is I think like, you know, mm. the first thing is it doesn't really, we can just carry on doing what we're doing. Yep. It's, yeah. It's interesting that being a savior is also a trauma response. And yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. So, so I think, you know, two years ago, I was probably still there in that place where I'm like, oh, I've got to save everyone. And, yeah. You know, so n- now, you know, I think why it matters more deeply is for myself. Like, that's the first thing. Like, I, I, I want to, you know, continue to live in a way that, that's, that's useful. So that's, I mean, that's certainly one thing, but mm. yeah. And, you know, not to make it look, oh, it doesn't matter. It's all good. It's like, no, like it, and to answer like on the other, on the other end of that question, it does matter, mm-hmm. you know? And I think, you know, why is this so important? Like, why, why is it that I would choose to spend my time, energy and effort doing this? And why would anyone else want to learn this right. know, ultimately? Right. And I think you nail it with the suffering. Like that's really the, the key piece for me is the suffering because pain is part of life, but the suffering is optional. Mm. And the suffering is what we're, the meaning that we're making about the pain. Mm. And pain in our own body is a signal. And when we learn to interpret it, Mm. I, I ideally correctly, mm-hmm. right? We learn to befriend it. We understand what it's there for. We can recognize that it's actually telling us something. Right. And so I, I think that as we get better at understanding and intuiting our own signals, mm. that we get better at basically living and relating mm. to everything, relating to the land, to, you know, water, each other, mm. our families, all of those things. Mm. So, um, I also like what you're speaking to around this idea of like what the internal landscape is and then how it's reflecting out into the world. Mm. You know, it's kind of tragic that um, our society and our systems are set up such that um, it requires a certain level of like assertiveness to be a leader. Mm. And I think if that isn't coupled with compassion, we've got a problem. Mm-hmm. And I think that this idea of, you know, Power that's ungrounded is is quite dangerous, and power that's also not compassionate and thinking about the whole or the collective is also quite dangerous. And I think mm. ultimately, people, when they're more regulated, move from I to we. Mm. So they move out of just simply thinking about what can I do for myself, and they start thinking about what can we do for each other. Yeah, and that's been sort of part of how. You know, Loa, my business partner, and I, and Satori in research and the core team at Breathwork Bali, what we've been looking at with FBR is like, how can we share this in a collective way mm-hmm. such that we can reach, yeah, people and change the mindset from the I to the we? Mm-hmm. And I think that also needs to be contextualized with the fact that like the world is safer than it's ever been. Like, you know, when we look at statistical data and factfulness is an amazing book for this. 
um, by, I forget his name. Hans Rosling. Yeah, thank you, Hans Rosling. It's a Swedish author, right? And just like an epic book. And it gives us all of the data, right? And it gives us all of the data that dismantles our own beliefs around the way that we might have been seeing the world. We've been seeing the world through a lens that's basically tainted and old, like at least 40 years ago or maybe even 60 years old Mm -hmm. because we were taught it by people who were 20 or 30 and then we were taught it, in my case, like 35 years ago. So, you know, my my worldview needs to be updated. And unfortunately, my worldview is still likely trapped in emotional anchors in my physical body, like Mm -hmm. in the way that like I'm, you know, like Mm -hmm. not breathing correctly and I'm just, you know, I'm like I've got it stuck in my low brain and all of these memories and the way I'm perceiving looking for fear. So, yeah, the reality is that like there is still a lot of challenge. There's still a lot of hardship in the world and consistently like humanity is becoming better fed, educated and safer. Mm. And that's statistically accurate. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I almost want to push back slightly on mm. that in the sense of um, one of the previous guests I talked to, this amazing guy called Zach Stein, he talks about uh, we're kind of currently going through what he describes as global intimacy disorder. Yeah. And for me, it feels like um, the things that we've been speaking about, these, these traumas, these incomplete reflexes are, uh, they, they get in the way of intimacy with ourselves, intimacy with other people and intimacy with the world around us. And I love what I think breathwork is doing is, is kind of addressing the blocks that get in the way of that intrinsic intimacy that we can have with the world. At least that's, that's kind of how I'm viewing it. And, and even though there are all of these kind of, um, verifiable metrics that are improving, the internal landscape or the, the, the sense that people have is of this decrease of intimacy, this decrease of primary satisfaction with the world, which is, leading to more suffering yeah thank you johnny you know i think what comes up what one of the things that came up for me with factfulness with with the book was and these and these metrics about how how much better the world is 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 getting is the balancing metric of what cost it was to humanity to humans and to enjoyment wasn't also present Hmm. right so that was the curiosity of like how like the depth of all of the balancing metrics Hmm. and so you know whilst you know we were like technically better educated like are we actually more intelligent Mm. you know so i mean if we're measuring education by our capacity to pass an exam then not so much but if we're you know looking at it in a way that we could come together in a group and problem solve that's a different metric for intelligence Mm -hmm. so i sort of questioned a lot of these things similarly like you know we're looking at the fact that like well you know hunger has statistically dropped all over the world but yeah, in terms of nutrition mm. and the way that we're actually eating, mm-hmm. has that actually improved? Right. Right. And so, you know, I think there's the, the problem is, you know, these reductionist approaches, we're not, it, it, there's a lot, of, there's a lot going on out there right now, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, just kind of, and it's getting more complex, yeah. <laughs> let's be honest, right? Yeah. So, yeah, if we were to bring it all back down, like this idea of intimacy, like, or even right relationship of like mm-hmm. how we are relating to all things, yep. like that's a, that's a, an inventory that's got a lot bigger. One of the like personal big issues for me that I have is, you know, the idea that, you know, people are more and more disconnected from themselves and each other Mm -hmm. as we continue in this current, you know, way. Mm -hmm. And so there's a, what I notice is this resurgence back to connecting to myself, the land and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, people with a totally different depth. One of the reasons I think that that's so challenging for people is because when we connect with that depth, all parts of us are seen. Mm. And that can be terrifying. Mm. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, as yeah. you've experienced the willingness to sit in a circle of the same people mm. for three months and to go through this whole process of, you know, sharing openly about what you notice in your body and how your breath's moving and to be witnessed in that, mm. it's very, very vulnerable. And that takes a lot of courage mm. to be fully seen because these parts yeah. of us that we might have hidden yeah. to get through our childhood or to operate in society or to be a big leader or to, you know, drive a business or whatever it might be, right? Mm. They've had to have been hidden or banished. And mm. what I'm more curious around is how we could lead with those. Yeah. Like, how could those also be present? Yeah. And so I think this is like, you know, if I talk about it in a sort of uh, maybe rose-tinted lenses, like this is like a, uh, a return to wholeness. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, individually and then subsequently collectively. And yep. I'm a bit of a Luddite when it comes to technology, but I do think there are a lot of ways that it is really enhancing our lives. Mm. And like everything, it's a double-edged sword. Mm. Um, you know, we're about to go into some really interesting tech research elements and, uh, and, and deploy and apply tech in a really interesting way. And we've mm. got a lot of things that are going to be quite frontier in what we're going to do. Mm. And I think the importance is that we don't in any way attempt to hack the human experience mm. and that we just continue to enjoy like, you know, sunsets and tea <laughs> <laughs> yeah no I, I really love that perspective and it, it makes me think of the, almost this metaphor of like bringing these exiled parts of ourselves back into wholeness yeah um and yeah that's that's kind of related to the second thing i want us to just touch on which is that i feel like there's relatively few access points for these kinds of healing or transformational experiences in society and there is a lot of exciting research with MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, psilocybin. Um, but my sense is that these aren't going to be accessible for most people in kind of the, the decades to come, either because of cost or because people don't want to be taking substances. And so my sense is that this, this modality of FBR has the potential to, um, to kind of bridge this gap and provide a container for people um, to increase their capacity and resilience and maybe process this emotional debt that they might otherwise be unknowingly projecting onto loved ones, mm. companies, things like that. What are your, what's your perspective on that? <clears throat> well, thanks, John. I love hearing that. Firstly, I love hearing that you think that this could, like FBR could be this. Mm. And that's definitely what I think as well. Mm. Um, yeah. And since our last conversation two years ago, I'm, I'm much more confident in the capacity to share it with more and more people. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, this idea, like ultimately, you know, you touch into MDMA-assisted therapy and psilocybin-assisted therapy, and it's my, my you know, hypothesis that they're actually doing the same thing in terms of disabling the default mode network and allowing mm -hmm. the subconscious material to surface. Mm -hmm. The kind of little bit like somatic experiencing is I just, I, I question like how fully complete they are every time mm. and and with when we're when we're using a substance like you touched on like some people won't trust that or want to do it mm. and i also think that um what what would uh, an appropriate failure rate be you know mm. that's really a question right because mm. um yeah this isn't gonna that they don't work for for all subjects uh, that's just the reality and so you know until it's really challenging to be like okay well we're going to take someone through this and we just don't concretely know what's going to happen now the thing with fbr is like if it's well guided it lands and because we're just working with breath the, and if we're aware of the, the the mechanisms that are in place and the fail safes that we can activate mm -hmm. you know we can guide someone safely and effectively regardless of their history and, and, and anything else that's going on mm -hmm. and so 
yeah, for me, it's, it's safe, like very, very safe. It's um, free, essentially, to practice it. Once you've mastered it yourself, you can, like, you know, you keep yeah. dropping in. Right, which is a huge empowerment piece as well. I think you're not relying yeah. on some exogenous substance to heal you, but totally. it's something that is within you. Yeah, and I think this is like one of uh, this is one of the biggest returns to our own personal power, right? Mm-hmm. And and so, hang on, it's like I'm capable of creating these shifts and changes through just breathing. Mm-hmm. Like, I can consciously change my breath, and I can change myself in this way. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's beautiful and. You know, also we're mindful with FBR to, you know, not create, you know, to ensure that, you know, there's a depend- interdependence between the practitioner and the breather. Right. Um, yeah. And so ultimately, like the inquiry now is like, okay, how do we scale? You know, that's where we're getting to right now with FBR. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my one of my one of my breathwork teachers, Robin Clements, um, who's, uh, you know, I'm extremely grateful for, for him and the way that so many of the things that he's taught me. Mm. Um, and you know, one of the things that he's continuously reminded me to do is slow down Mm. and in the way that we're approaching this work. Um, and I've, you know, the way my mind works is this desire to get more into the, the rigor of, of, you know, clinical studies. I'm really, really excited to have Satori on the team for that. Mm -hmm. And I think, yeah, I think to scale effectively, I just want the efficacy rate to be, to be really high. Right. Like, you know, for me, you know, it's, it's possible that we can have a hundred percent efficacy rate, right. Right. With this technique, it's possible. Mm-hmm. And so that would be like something this lifetime that, that I could set my heart to, you know, just yeah. be like, Hey, like we could get this so researched and dialed in mm-hmm. that whoever is approaching us and whatever is the underlying issue that we can create you know, a protocol and system of change that very, very effectively guides them back to, to, to really great health. Yeah. Okay, great. So, so let's, let's imagine that say Andrew Huberman, Jack Feldman and some investors with deep pockets are listening to this episode. Sure. What might be some of the most interesting research questions or future projects that you would love to investigate if and when the funding and resources become available. Yeah, thanks so much. Jenny. So, yeah, in the next two weeks, I've got a few meetings with uh, a few people here. Uh, um, okay. Yeah, so I can I can roughly tell you what that's about. Okay. And then so, there's a kind of an outlier project that um, cool. that I'd also we're going to work on simultaneously. That is much more in the VC tech startup realm. Mm-hmm. So. What we what we are working on uh, in the next couple of weeks and what we will be executing quite rapidly is a study to compare the efficacy of connected breathing versus movement and nutrition. Hmm. And so we're gonna the the dream study would be a thousand people with with ten groups. It's a big sample size. Yeah. So we're gonna see if we can get up there. So a thousand people with ten groups. And basically each group would be tracked qualitatively and quantitatively in a few different metrics. So likely, you know, some fairly standard questionnaires and then assessments of breath. Mm-hmm. And the 10 groups would be control for 100. And then we'd have just just breath work, just movement and just nutrition. And then the subsequent combinations. So breath and movement, breath and nutrition, mm-hmm. movement and nutrition, and then breath, movement and nutrition. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so once we've got all of those, we've got, basically we can roll that out and we can just do like a, what, what I'd like to do is like a reasonable length study, so probably six months. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of that, we can look at the data. And I'm hypothesizing, but willing to be wrong, that breath would be the 
continuum and a factor that creates the most change. Mm-hmm. And that breath with movement would be second. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, the, the most effective would be breath, movement, and nutrition. Mm-hmm. Subsequently, breath and movement, mm-hmm. and then subsequently breath and nutrition. Mm-hmm. And then I think that, you know, just changing people's movement pattern. And then finally, the lowest hanging fruit would be nutrition. Mm-hmm. And it's bizarre that we spend so much money and effort and energy as a collective on nutrition mm-hmm. when I think it's probably the, lower, the, the, the least effective mm-hmm. in creating change. Mm-hmm. So that's likely to happen. It's We're curious around how it's going to go. Um, we're also going to be looking at how we can get the data for that. We Our last pilot study was with Aura, the, the Aura rings. You've got yours on. <clears throat> um, and we were tracking HRV over a three-month period with a small sample size of 16 mm-hmm. um, whilst journaling for that. And we're about to code that data and, and, and look at how we've done. Our trend line's really strong. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the, the the first project that's coming alive now is to, is to, is to roll that one out. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, we're going to move into a lot more corporate wellness. Like that's where FBR is going to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just really interested to see like how we can maybe even deploy teams consistently. Like so mm-hmm. once a quarter and then just go in, measure run some workshops and leave because what I'm curious around is how it's sticking in the nervous system. Right. Because with FBR, it creates lasting neuroplastic change. So it's just because we've reverted to a previous pattern of breathing that wants to be here, mm-hmm. it doesn't require us to maintain it. Mm-hmm. So th- this is where there's no effort required in the maintenance. We're mm-hmm. just creating more optimization. Mm-hmm. So that's one project. Um, yeah, so super excited on that. We've got also... The next thing that I think is really fascinating is this idea that we can create a wearable that will in some ways self-guide a breather. Mm. So it won't be a substitute for a human mm. because they're yeah, like a human's working with humans is, is like the most effective way. And as you spoke, as we've kind of spoken about like Blink from Gladwell or all of the subtleties that we're picking up on that's changing moment to moment, mm. there is no way that we could create a machine that would be as effective as a human. Mm. I have to say that. Is there no way that we could create that? <laughs> There's also the felt sense of safety piece as well. That yeah. I think another human yeah. fights, which, is, which would be challenging yeah. for. Yeah. And I think because of that, like we've spoken about this, but like one of our team the other day was like, I would never have like a mechanical arm compression <laughs> I'd be terrified it would fail so it's like, like, and it's so funny to think about it there's, there's actually no way that that, um, that I would be like strapped into a machine yeah like and, and then allow it to take me through some of the things that some of the facilitators take me not, through not yet anyway I don't you know it's interesting because like what if the power fails off this route I think about this with Pravula right <laughs> you know? right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. so yeah <laughs> Johnny you know, oh God, like, for the listeners like we, we train here with um Basically, it looks like you're being you're being courted. You're hung from like your wrists and your your ankles, right, from weights. It's terrifying. Yeah, and you're hung vertically. And I just think about like it's running on a winch, and if that fails, then thankfully they just pull all the sandbags off. Yeah. So that's how they get you down. But but ultimately, yeah, I have thought about that. Right? <laughs> anyway, so yeah, I think like you know, te- technology is amazing, unlimited. But anyway, we have this idea that we could create a wearable that would measure a variety of different metrics in real time, HRV and vagal tone, mm-hmm. and we'll be able to guide someone into a variety of different breathing rhythms and then get them complete. Mm. And that would more be for our clients in between. And so, keep them within the window of tolerance exactly. during that. And this is more likely for an experienced breather. So as an example, you, you know, you're going to the States, and mm-hmm. you're, you, you would have your wearable and it would guide you because you're very capable of, you know, modulating yourself. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, the, the, the ideal is that we can 
go into an organization. We can, you know, look at <laughs> their the breathing patterns of a variety of different people. Mm-hmm. We can optimize. We can tell them, you know, maybe even give them some practices outside of that. And then we give them a wearable that's connected to their phone and it's measuring the whole thing. And then we have a dashboard and we can review it and mm. we can see like, hey, like, you know, it's time for you to come in for a treatment, right? So it's like, it, it, we could actually get that good where we can see that like, you know, when someone starts slipping out of their window of tolerance or like they're, they're depleting or whatever's mm. going on, that they come in for a journey. Mm. So that would be like really easy. I mean, it's kind of there with Aura already with sleep scores and readiness. I mean, if the readiness plummets consistently or HIV is dropping over time, we can be like, Hey, it's time to come in for, you know, just here's mm-hmm. a reminder, right? So any organization that's focused on like, you know, cognitive capacities ought to be interested in this work for the fact that it's the lowest hanging fruit. Mm-hmm. And also because with the metrics and data, it's likely that they would then be able to, you know, know when certain employees actually need support. Right. Um, and also likely that support would be a combination of some simple coaching mm. along with body work, along with coaching again. Mm. And this is a formula I think is really, really powerful for improving, you know, productivity, but in a way that's actually like long-term. Yeah, that's powerful. And not, not even just productivity, but I guess emotional regulation as well. And I, I remember yeah. you mentioning that, um, someone from a, the CEO of a company asked you to breathe certain potential new hires to kind of assess like, would these people be you know, good fits for the company culture? Yeah. And I can, I can imagine a lot of different potential. Oh, it's the wildest a- interview. A- applications. <laughs> <laughs> it must be the wildest interview for someone. Like, if they've never had done connected breathing. I mean, connected breathing when you get into it is like, it's very mind altering. And so, you know, we enter into these incredibly non-ordinary states of consciousness, right? So if someone's, you know, dropping in for an interview with me, they have literally no idea what is about to unfold if they've not experienced it. I like, life, there's, there's life before breath work and life after breath work, right? So then after that, they're like, okay, like, you know, what do I tell the boss, you know? So anyway, looking for all of the adaptive patterns and proper mechanisms, but as you speak to, like, what's the emotional resilience? And ultimately what that means is how are they able to relate and communicate within the organization? Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I'd still like to get a little bit clearer on on defining some of those meaning pieces mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I love exploring all of the different ways that we measure humans. Mm. Um, as an example, you know, Jordan Peterson's really big on ocean on the big five personality test, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, whilst it might give some good data that you can then compare, the the horrific blind spot of it is it's, it's actually self-answered. Mm. So each person fills out their own personality test. Sure. Yeah. It has <laughs> um, some challenges. <laughs> yeah. So like, Brett, this is what I think of myself. Yeah. yeah so yeah. like, you know, that doesn't really offer like great, you know, great data. Yeah. Right. So the thing about breathing is it's not what the person thinks about their breathing. It's just it's that's pretty, is their breathing. pretty objective. Yeah. And it's like, if anyone was to look at their breathing rhythm with the same lens that they can see through, they're going to see the same thing. Right? right, right. So I think this is where it actually eliminates blind spots with like Myers-Briggs as an example as well, which a lot of organizations used to hire. Yeah. So, you know, if you're using the big five or Myers-Briggs, unfortunately, it's, it's the candidate that's answering the questions. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, with this one, it's like, you know, I think this is great. And the other thing is, you know, those examples of like uh, – when you put five people together and you get, you know, what just popped into my head is the men in black scene with Will, with Will Smith, where he like drags the table over to answer the questionnaire. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. it's just like, you just got to watch people and how they operate. Right. 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 But one of the best ways to see that is to watch how someone relates to their own breath. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So. sure. Okay. Powerful. Um, so I'm conscious of time. 
Um, would it be all right to ask a few rapid fire questions before we, yeah. before we close up here? Yeah. Um, so first question is, what is one thing that your son Onyx has taught you about the human nervous system? It's funny. Uh, oh, rapid fire. Doesn't have to be, your, your answers don't have to be rapid. Just, just the questions. It wants balance. Mm. It wants to thrive. Yeah, its desire is for that. Mm. Yeah, and it is incredibly hardwired for that. Mm. Yeah, and as long as that is partnered with a very small amount of support, it will find the way. Mm. Beautiful. What has been the most powerful shift on your own life in recent memory created by, by Breathwork? Yeah, for me, the first journey. Mm. Yeah. And I think the first journey, like I mentioned it a few minutes ago, there was life before breathwork and life after breathwork. And once I'd been in one connected breathing journey, the Mm. first ever workshop I did with Robin Clements, I knew that I would follow this for the rest of my life. Mm. And it was just a switch. It was like, this is it. I'll just do this for the rest of my life. And it was really interesting because it was kind of sense of relief. I was like, oh, that's great. I don't have to do any other jobs. I'm just going to do this now. Um, yeah. So I think yeah. that was, yeah, fundamentally the most powerful. Um, and then I, I guess just practice, like just continuing practice. Like I do some conscious breathing in some way every day. Mm. And just how much there is there, how like this world and universe that's present within my own body. That's mm. just, I'm just still exploring and amazed at. Epic. Um, what is another embodied modality that you're interested in and you feel is complementary to connected breathing? Qigong. Mm. Yeah. <clears throat> like super easy. Super easy to answer that. Um, mm. You know, I'm a qualified yoga teacher and I spent a lot of time in asana. Um, and I think there's a lot there. I think, unfortunately, and I'll just speak to it directly, yoga asana is taught incredibly poorly now. Um, and I think it's also been highly commercialized and i think also it's been you know just disrespected and watered down in a variety of different ways Mm -hmm. so for me it's challenging to find i mean there's good hatha here uh but outside of that it's challenging i think really to find quality asana but for me the medallion that's that's really potent is qigong um, and specifically a series of um eight movements called badwan jin um which um focuses on the tendon channels, mm. which are often overlooked in a lot of modalities, and I'm super fascinated by tendons. Mm. Um, so anyway, it just explores those. I've been practicing that for five years um, every morning. So I get up in the morning and I do Qigong. Mm. Uh, and then I do breath work, and that's kind of my morning ritual. So there's something about slow flow movement with breath. Mm. It's like the combination of those things that is really potent. Nice. And I believe there's a YouTube video of the practice that you have and we, maybe we can share that in the Yeah, probably somewhere. In the, yeah, in the podcast it probably needs recording again as well. But like, <laughs> it's still the same practice, but just maybe a better quality. But yeah, I think there's a YouTube. Less rap. pixelated. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Great. Um, what is a book or resource that you would recommend to listeners who want to learn more about the nervous system for themselves? My, <clears throat> I think, yeah, definitely the work of Levine, um, is obviously like foundational in a lot of the things that I've been excited by and curious with mm-hmm. in an unspoken voice is, is probably um, one of the most interesting reads. Mm-hmm. And then the work of Kathy Kane, um, mm-hmm. Nurturing Resilience. Amazing yeah. book. I think that that 
in really for the nervous system is mm-hmm. fascinating. Mm-hmm. I I am a little uh, I go a little against the idea of the co-firing uh, of the sympathetic and parasympathetic being a problem. Mm. As more as like I think it's quite natural, but it's just how they are communicating. Interesting. And so I think there's a little bit more sort of nuance that I bring to the relationship with sympathetic and parasympathetic than is present in that book. Mm-hmm. But it's a great resource and mm-hmm. super well uh, written and researched. Yeah, and I yeah. know they talk a lot about the different reflexes that have been documented in that yeah. as well. Yeah. Great. And then finally, what project or direction are you most excited about in the coming years? Um, yeah, thank you. I mean, research for sure. Like I would, firstly, I would say research um, and just like a lot of the neurological elements that we're going to be getting into. And then on the other end of that spectrum, the other thing that I'm super excited about is um, campus-based learning here in Bali. Mm-hmm. So continuing to build out our project Desalima. Uh, my dream is to have um, residential campus-based learning mm. there on that site. So we're just exploring what that would look like um, for investment um, to build out to basically 12 units so we can train us, our practitioners um, in a residential living community mm. with like great great food and resources and so on, a core plunge and all the other things that we know supports people through that process. Sounds really good. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. This has been an absolute pleasure once again. Um, let's say listeners are keen to experience an FBR session or maybe even train with you in 2023. What are some ways that they might be able to engage further? Yeah, thanks so much, Jenny. Um, but yeah, it's been amazing to be back here and talking again. I think it's another six hours that we can continue yeah. <laughs> for, but we'll keep it here. Um, for FBR, yeah, I mean, Working with one of our practitioners, um, we're, we're sort of um, mostly based in Bali and there's a smattering around the world and our, our website for FBR is going through launch, revamp slash launch. Um, so that's going to be coming live soon. Um, so that's facilitatedbreathrepatterning.com is going to be live. Mm-hmm. Um, for tr- I mean, come to Bali and, and, you know, come to Bali and experience the Breathwork Bali team who are all FBR trained. Um, there's... 30 of us on the team here now, more or less, mm, which wow. is amazing. Um, and so lots of opportunity to come and spend some time here understanding breath. Uh, we're going to have a lot of different offerings coming alive at Desalima at the Shalala. For training in 2023, it's likely we're already sold out. Mm. So um, kind of sitting in this awkward space of being like, we don't, like we're tapped. And we've got so much demand for people to train with us and we just don't have the capacity. So, mm. you know, we are looking at how are we going to offer more trainings in the future. Right. And that's, of course, like, getting it back to the faculty of staff training as opposed to me leading all trainings. Sure. We've got, you know, Pete um, coming through as well and he's likely going to start leading some training soon. Amazing. So, yeah, just exploring what that's going to look like as well um, for, for other people coming on board. But, yeah, I mean, just come here and experience what we do. Um, yeah, and, yeah, I think that's it's, – it's interesting because, you know, we are, we are scaling and we're doing it steadily to ensure that the quality is present. So, yeah. Yeah. It's a super fine balance. Yeah. All right, thank you. And I'll include the links in the show notes as well for listeners. Thanks so much. Um, so yeah, I'd love to close with this Rilke line. He mm. said, try to love the questions themselves and live them now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live your way into the answer. With that in mind, what is the question that is most alive in your consciousness right now? And what question might you leave our listeners with? Mm. 
Wow. Well, the first one that comes to mind is how am I breathing? And I think that in asking and answering that question, likely we'll find all the answers. Beautiful. We will wrap the show with that. I'll see you back here in two years' time. <laughs> two years. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this conversation. It would mean a lot to me if you could take a few seconds to open up your podcast app and give Curious Humans a shiny five-star rating. This not only helps more people to find it, but it will help me to get more awesome guests in the future. And if you're not already subscribed, then the Curious Humans newsletter is where I share monthly morsels of interestingness and podcast updates. You can sign up for that at johnny.life. That's J-O-N-N-Y dot life.